Welcome back. David Penn here, the Professor Penn Podcast. Hope you're doing well. Nice to see you back. We'll start out with a, a reading. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. It's a nice way to start the day. It's a nice way to start a meeting. It's a meditation. It's a timeless prayer that uh, we the people can focus on and rally around to bring back a sense of unity and community. That's unity and community in our American experiment. Thank you, as always, to Free People Radio, Free People of America for hosting this podcast. Tireget.com. That's Tireget, T-I-R-E-G-E-T.com. That's my concession to some of my critics, trying to make that easier to understand. Tireget.com for all your tire needs. Freedom of movement. You get the tires you need at the right price, and you fund the American movement that we have here at Free People of America. It's a, it's a win-win. PrecinctStrategy.com a tutorial on how to get into the real game of politics to stop whining, to stop venting, and actually get off the couch and get in the game. And I need you to get in the game. I'm asking you to be in the game. And if you're already in the game and you're a member of a party, if you like this content, please send it out to other people that you know are politically active so we can form a movement first here in the state of Minnesota and then throughout the country of people that are interested in human well-being, to make all of our politics about well-being, the well-being of the people. Well, um, I want to just put a little bit, you know, the Ukraine is always there. We're going to talk about Ukraine on the next podcast. It hasn't gone away. Bakhmut has fallen, and uh, maybe it fell. Who knows? I'm not there. Fortunately, I'm sure they're probably... If you're one of the people that are watching me that would like to be in Bakhmut, I salute you. I'm past that point in my life. Um, you know, although it has been said, and I do like this, if people over 50 were forced to fight all the wars, there wouldn't be any wars. You know, older, older, older people send their sons and daughters off to die in wars. Flip it around. That'd be the end. No more fighting. Something to think about. Because we accept all these bizarre realities as if they're the truth. They're not the truth. They're just something that humans have concocted coming up out of the muck and kind of it just happened. Let's look at it that way. Could be malevolent, could be stupid. The outcome's the same. That's why I say I want truth commissions so we can figure it out. Do you like the idea of truth commissions? I hope you do. I mean, you know, please, we're going to be able to communicate with each other very soon. I'm looking forward to your opinions. The debt ceiling, that's a hot topic of the day. I want to just uh, opine about that just briefly because something occurred to me, you know, 
my entire life, they've been having these debt ceiling increases. And every time it's the same drama. Oh, we're going to default. It's the end of the world. That is such a scam. It just occurred to me. This is where I feel like, oh, I hadn't thought this through very well, which would be the same thing as saying I was stupid. And I'm okay admitting when I'm stupid because that, you know, it happens from time to time, all the time. I got thinking about default. Default? We're not defaulting. Where's America going to go? Okay. What's going to happen is if there's a breakdown, we're going to do what's called slow pay. Slow pay is not no pay. Default means can't pay. It's not that we can't pay. It's that we might have to slow pay. And slow pay is not the end of the world. Slow pay is what people do when they have a cash flow crunch. It's not a big deal as long as the money keeps coming in and people keep working and keep trying to improve. And then people get paid. They just get paid a little slowly. And I think when we're $32 trillion in debt, it's not unreasonable to have a pause, have a conversation. Like, you know, there's been times in my life recently where, you know, ends are not meeting so well. And I have to pause and think, what am I doing here? I have to reevaluate what I'm doing. And we got this scam going on, like the government doesn't have to do that. That's because we, the people, aren't paying attention. Well, how's that inflation working for you? How's that inflation working? You know, I think in Venezuela, the inflation rate last year, I think I said, was like 600 700%. How would that work for you in a year? So sometimes you have to take a pause, reflect, and reset. And that's what we're going through here. Now, if I was uh, in charge of these negotiations, I would just say, here's my offer. I'm going to the lake cabin. Call me if you want to cut a deal. Otherwise, piss off because I'm not negotiating. See, when you reach an impasse and you, and you know that you're right, think about this. Oh, we're going to default. We're going to go bankrupt. Well, they're going to bankrupt us anyhow if we keep borrowing money. So why not just proactively create the conditions for a restructuring as opposed to wait for chaos when stuff happens out of our control? Just a small little comment on the debt ceiling negotiation. Don't want to delve into it too far. It's a quite a complex subject. We could spend podcast after podcast on it. But the basic idea is, why are we in debt? Who wrote on a rock that we should be $32 trillion in debt? Why don't we have $32 trillion of equity? And I mean equity as in money in the bank or net worth. Why are we in debt all the time? Who taught all of us to be in debt? That's a scam, don't you think? You could flip it around. Equity. Equity. These are one of the things we need to think about as we rebuild America and retool our thinking. It's our thinking. And my thinking, my, and I'm waking up from a bad dream. You're waking up from a bad dream, too. It's a bad dream. It's called slavery, drugs, piracy. The business model, it's a bad dream. And on that note, what does that piracy, drugs, and slavery business model generate? It generates a humongous spiritual crisis. I, I felt it. Have you had point, you know, I've had times in my life where I've been spiritually overwhelmed, you know, emotionally overwhelmed, unwell. And I think part of gaining wellness and gaining balance 
How can you gain it if you're never unbalanced to start out with? You won't even know what the duality is. You know, I'm going to ask you as a, as a viewer or a listener, are you at a point right now and are you in a spiritual crisis or are you in an emotional crisis or do you have questions that are nagging you about the meaning of your life, the nature of life? You know, those questions are really important as a cornerstone for understanding the spiritual crisis. You, if you don't have the crisis, you can't have the healing. And my gosh, if you've never been sick, you can get quite arrogant. You know, life is uh, it's a challenge. Of course, we could read the books of old because they've been left here for us so that we could live our lives in peace and well-being. But we have better things to do now than read and to contemplate and to talk one to another. We have all this media and et cetera and so on. We have all this tomfoolery. We don't put the time into um, investigating the past. And I'm going to get into something later in the day, but I just have to say this. I was having a conversation, because this one stuck in my craw. I was having a conversation with an officer of uh, the party, one of the parties, and we were talking about this Ukraine drama. And he was telling me about how he supported the war and all this, and I listened, and I, I unleashed a torrent of historical information upon this guy. And I'm going to talk about this later. It was a very interesting vignette. But his comment was, don't talk to me about history. It doesn't matter. Oh, really? Oh, really? The sum of human knowledge cataloged for our contemplation so we could learn from our mistakes doesn't matter. Very interesting. Very interesting. That's the kind of attitude that gets you killed. Spiritual crisis. This all started for me, this, this little section, with something Royce White said about um, gun violence and suicide, comparing the two. And uh, I, I really did some research on this, and I, I'm not here to take any issue with, uh, with Royce's statistics because, as I'm going to bring out in a minute, you know, statistics, come on. There's, you know, statistics. It's, you can say anything with statistics. So I'm just going to point out what I want to point out with the statistics I'm going to bring forward. 2020 was the last published numbers where I could find all the categories I was looking for because for some reason there's a lag in reporting in the government websites. The National Institute of Health, oh, what a fine organization that is. You want to talk about a retool. People are talking about the FBI, the CIA, oh, you know, National Institute of Health. Let, let's not pick these proxies, okay, to have a fight over proxies. Let's just go right down to the people that are running the show. National Institute of Health. In 2020, they reported that there were 19,384 homicides by gun. Which, if you're one of the families of those 19,384 people that died by gun, I'd like to say a prayer for you, for your healing, uh, for the relief of your suffering, for your mourning, and to recognize that uh, in the morning there may be joy. You may be wrapped in robes of joy, that your mourning may turn into joy and faith, and meaning, 
that the death of your loved one is not without meaning and understanding that comes from such loss and such pain. And I say this prayer very sincerely for you. Because if that happened to your loved one or in your family, that's your world. And in no way do I want to minimize that suffering. All of us pray for you. You know, there was 38,824 people that died in car accidents in 2020, which is twice as many. Same thing. If you had a loved one that passed in a car accident and you got that call and you had to go look at someone you love dead, because I've been there and I know what it feels like, and it's most disruptive to the soul to look at someone you love laid there dead and maybe maimed. I mean, it's horrifying, right? I have post-traumatic stress disorder from this. Right now, while I'm sitting here with you, I'm seeing dead bodies in my mind. Uh, not fun. I have a prayer for you. Also, if you're, you've suffered the loss of a loved one from a car accident, I pray for you that there's meaning in this for you, that this seemingly random uh, death of someone you loved or cared about builds faith and doesn't extinguish it that we understand together that there's things that we just don't get. We don't know what the plan is. And that's why we want to take every breath with intentionality. Every minute is a gift. And the pain that I suffer for the people that I've lost has made me a better person, kinder, gentler, less arrogant. 45,900 suicides that same year, 2020. 45,900 suicides. People taking their own lives because the spiritual crisis was so painful that they couldn't bear it any longer. And for these people that have these suicides, this is almost the, the ultimate pain because you feel responsible. I have the, had that happen to me. An anecdote. I was given a young man to take care of at one point, uh, some people that I was related to, his family matter. I was a young man, and this man was, you know, he was 18, 19 years old. Very prominent family. If I mentioned the family name, you'd know it in a second. This is a famous family, really famous, doesn't come any more famous. I have some of those connections in my life. This family, if I told you the name, you'd go, wow, you're related to these people? And as a matter of fact, I am. These are my cousins. And they had a, a grandson in that family who was having some, you know, I didn't know he was having problems. The family just said, let him hang out with you because they figured I had, you know, I was cool and I would rub off on this very unhappy young man. He was about 18, 19 years old. So I stuck him in the back seat and I drove him around wherever I went. I don't even think I spent a lot of time talking to him because it was a, an unpleasant assignment from the family. I was in the prime of my young life and having a great time, and I'm dragging this uh, quiet, depressed kid along with me. I mean, I tried to help him a little, and when he shot himself, uh, I didn't feel very good about myself. And I said to my uh, grandmother, why didn't you tell me this kid was this screwed up? Oh, well, 
They didn't know either. That was a surprise. And everybody sat around and cried for a very long time over that one. But I felt very guilty about it. I mean, if I want to generate it, I could feel guilty right here sitting talking to you about, you know, being responsible for someone. They didn't tell me he had severe psychological problems. They just told me he needed to make friends. Thank you for the diagnosis. He made a friend with the barrel of a gun. What did this tell me? It tells me that our media controls the messaging about these tragedies. I mean, we talk a little bit about uh, car accidents. You know, they make good news. They, they report it on the local news. Oh, there was a three-car accident and four people died. It's great. People love to run out to the accident scene and look at the carnage. I don't know why. They've probably never been involved in any real carnage. I personally don't like to look at that because it's more, more of the post-traumatic stress disorder for me. I don't like it. But people like it. And the media serves it up, sells soap, sells drugs, you know, sells crappy food, you know, the commercials. Stay tuned. We're going to show you the car accident. And then they put on the Skyrizzy commercial. Commercial. Excuse me. See, when I get mad, some of this really makes me mad, okay? And I don't come across as being mad because, as I said, I'm less arrogant. I'm kinder and gentler as I'm getting older. But I'm, I'm furious about some of this stuff. The media controls the message, and the focus is on this gun violence. And this gun violence really, uh, you know, it's afflicting certain communities more than others. And it's a, it's a symptom of a, a very deep spiritual illness. Suicide, it's the same illness. It seems different. We don't really talk about the mental health thing that much. I mean, we talk about it, but not that much. And how do we really talk about it? Go to your psychiatrist. We can treat your depression. We can treat your bipolar disorder. We can treat your whatever the disorder is that, that you know, birth, death, in between a series of diagnostic codes with a revenue stream. You know, they're trying to treat a spiritual crisis with a drug. That would be called masking symptoms. And I'm not here again to say that people do not benefit from pharmacology. There are benefits. But when we mass treat a society with drugs that mask symptoms, we're not really getting down to the cause, the cause of why these people, why I have suffered from depression, you know, why you've suffered from it, or anxiety, you know, anxiety, you know, this is kind of a, you know, an epidemic of anxiety, which is not talked about. But, but these, these suicides, these, this gun violence, perhaps even these car accidents, all have a common denominator. And that's we've removed the guardrails of the sanctity of life. When I'm in a car driving, I feel a very intense responsibility to protect myself, the people in the car with me, and everybody on the road. I'm thinking about it in terms of sanctity of life. Are you? Are you? Th I mean, even if I have the radio on and I'm listening to music, 
That never goes away for, for me because a fundamental building block of me, David Penn, is the importance of the sanctity of life. I couldn't kill myself. I know I couldn't. I just have too much put in there at that cornerstone called sanctity of life. It's not my life in my mind. I'm renting, okay? I'm a renter. I'm not an owner of that life. I know it. And I know who the owner of it is, who the architect of it is, in my thinking. Now, I'm not saying there aren't other ways to think about this. But when you take out that guardrail that you're renting your life and you figure you own it and it's yours to play with, oh, gun violence, suicide, even car accidents. And I'm not saying there aren't accidents, please, if you suffered this. I am not trying to impugn. I am saying that our focus on life, the sanctity of life, and I know you know I'm talking about something else that I'm not going to mention because it's not the issue. The issue is the sanctity of life that leads to gun violence. Oh, let's blame the gun. Let's make all of our young people stupid, not educate them. Let's not enculturate them into the sanctity of life. And then let's blame the gun when they kill each other. Really? See, these are these scams that we get caught up in that we take seriously. And I'm going to tell you, this is another funny one. I went to an event um, this past Saturday, and there was Democrats there, which is great. And I went up to the, the head dog, and I said, nice to meet you. Let's put on some events that aren't branded by party. Let's just have some community understanding programs and get together and talk. That's what we need to do. We need to talk about these scams because we're scammed Democrat and Republican, liberal and conservative, white, black, green, red, doesn't matter. We're all living in a set of lies, lies. You know, if you believe a lie, it's the truth, right? It's not really the truth. It's the truth you believe, and you, when you're lied to, remember we talked about being misled, that leadership is about telling the truth, and when you mislead people through deceit and get them to go in the wrong direction, that's kind of neg leadership or anti-leadership. You know, we just want to tell people the truth, and, and um, I said to a political activist I met yesterday, you know, we're about telling the truth, Winning or losing is, is really not the name of this game. We might have to lose a long time, but we're not going to stop telling the truth. And people will rally around the truth because when people regain their feelings, which is you know part of this spiritual crisis, people can't feel. If you're taking a drug to make you not feel depressed, you can't feel anything. You can't feel joy anyhow. No sadness, no happiness. Sounds a little bit like socialism to me. Another conversation down the road. But let's just go on with this sanctity of life thing just for a second. Iraq, or Iraq, however you'd like to say it. We know, when I say we, this is off a U.S. government website, that between 280,771 and 315,190 Iraqis 
have died from direct war-related violence since the beginning of the Iraq invasion. Now let's call it about 300,000. Afghanistan, same website. You know, they're proud of these things. 243,000 people were killed in Afghanistan by the U.S. military. 70,000 were civilians. Oops. You know, the United States didn't get out of there unscathed. Approximately 7,000 American soldiers have died in these two wars, and 177,000 national military and police from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, and Syria, our allies, have died. You know, you start adding up the body count here, it's getting pretty high. That's our well-being. Not very well. The sanctity of life issue is not high on our list of priorities. Piracy, drugs, and slavery trump the sanctity of life. And they give us all kinds of reasons why. And if you, you know, take it at a cursory level, it makes perfect sense. My safety is dependent on my military killing Iraqis. Oh, makes perfect sense because the war could come over here. Great. You know, we're over there killing them. Maybe if we stop doing that, as Noam Chomsky said, the best way to stop terrorism is stop terrorizing other people. Something to think about. All these deaths, gun violence, suicide, car accidents, military murders, deaths, killings, whatever word you want to use, they're all a measure of our well-being. One could say, and David Penn is going to say, that the post-World War II Democrat liberal order is a death cult. If you add up all the people that have died since peace broke out, you'd have to say, uh, it's not the way it's advertised. The advertising is not what gets delivered. What's getting delivered is conquest and war. The Democrat liberal order is about war. And look at our military. Everywhere, fighting everybody all the time. A little bit like the British. A little bit like the Turks. We are agreed in our country. Right now, they're working on this debt ceiling. The two parties are going to agree. A trillion dollars for the military. Yep, everybody's all in on that. Nobody's cutting the military budget. Because we, the American people, think we need the military for our safety. When in fact, it's my opinion that it's actually the military that's taking my safety away from me and making me vulnerable. This is called spiritual crisis. We don't understand what causes the very maladies that afflict us. And that's what we're doing here. There I go, getting mad. There goes my voice. I'm working on that. When I get really mad, you know, if I just started screaming and swearing, My voice wouldn't do that. See, I'm stifling myself about how angry I am that we have this business model that is predicated on people dying. And then we blame the guns, as if the gun has a brain. You know, if we use some logic, just a little bit of logic, we recognize that what's really going on here is the government is trying to disarm the people behind the guise of all this gun violence, which is actually a measure 
of the spiritual sickness of the people that are pulling those triggers. Because if they were spiritually well, they would believe in the sanctity of life and they wouldn't kill each other. I mean, we didn't do it when I was 20 years old. It's a new phenomenon that's a post-1973 phenomenon. We'll go look at the numbers. Now, that's not to say that governments weren't doing a great job of killing each other, but I'm talking about individual citizens. We've always had the crazy guy that got pissed off and killed his wife. Sick. But this kind of mass shootings and this mass violence, 19,000 gun deaths, we didn't have that. 38,000 car accidents. Well, we had that. 45,000 suicides. You know, let's go back and look at these numbers over time and recognize how small these numbers are overall within a population of 300 million. How small these numbers are as a percentage of 300 million Americans. Number one, how the media has the power to focus us on these issues, and every one of these lives is important. And we should be focused on creating the well-being that reduces this carnage. But in terms of the total life of our country, the focus in here is intentional. So while we're focused on all this fighting and getting the government to agree, Democrats and Republicans, the uni party, that we should spend $1.1 trillion on defense and $1.6 trillion on health care, which is kind of the safety net for all this spiritual unwellness. Tanner, I want to remind everybody what's going on in the count room at the casino while we're focused on all this tomfoolery. Please play this bit. Who could resist? Anywhere else in the country, I was a bookie, a gambler, always looking over my shoulder, hassled by cops day and night. But here, I'm Mr. Rothstein. I'm not only legitimate, but running a casino. And that's like selling people dreams for cash. I hired an old casino pal, Billy Sherbert, as my manager, and I went to work. But guys like me, Las Vegas washes away your sins. It's like a morality car wash. It does for us what Lourdes does for humpbacks and cripples. And along with making us legit comes cash. Tons of it. I mean, what do you think we're doing out here in the middle of the desert? It's all this money. This is the end result of all the bright lights and the comp trips, of all the champagne and free hotel suites and all the broads and all the booze. It's all been arranged just for us to get your money. That's the truth about Las Vegas. We're the only winners. The players don't stand a chance. And their cash flows from the tables to our boxes, through the cage, and into the most sacred room in the casino. The place where they add up all the money, the holy of holies, the count room. 
Now, this place was off limits. Even I couldn't get inside. But it was my job to keep it filled with cash, that's for sure. They had so much fucking money in there, you could build a house out of stacks of $100 bills. And the best part was that upstairs, the board of directors didn't know what the fuck was going on. I mean, to them, everything looked on the up and up, right? Wrong. The guys inside the counting room were all slipped in there to skim the joint dry. They'd do short counts, they'd lose fill slips, they'd even take cash right out of the drop boxes. And it was up to this guy right here, standing in front of about $2 million, to skim the cash off the top without anybody getting wise, the IRS or anybody. Now notice how in the count room nobody ever seems to see anything. Somehow somebody's always looking the other way. Now look at these guys, they look busy, right? They're counting money, who wants to bother them? I mean, God forbid they should make a mistake and forget to steal. Meanwhile, you're in and you're out. Pass the Jagoff guard who gets an extra C note a week just to watch the door. I mean, it's routine. Business as usual. In, out, hello, goodbye, and that's all there is to it. Just another fat fuck walking out of the casino with a suitcase. Isn't that great? That's your government. I, I just want to say that's my government. We the people, all of us, have allowed, we're all in on it to some degree, varying degrees, we're all in on a casino which we call Washington, D.C. And it exists for one thing, to take all our energy away, which is expressed as our money, because our energy, our creativity, our hard work, the sweat of our brawl, we get taxed. The money goes to the Holy of Holies, which is the Washington, D.C., the Emerald City, and they skim it off. I mean, the whole thing is a giant scam, a skim. It's a fugazi. And now we're talking about $32 trillion of debt and raising the debt ceiling. They're scamming us. While we're looking at these homicides in the street, young black men shooting each other. Oh, my God. It's a national crisis. Got to take the guns. Oh, we're going to look at this crisis and that crisis. While all these crises are going on, they're just robbing us. They're taking our energy. You know? So when are we going to wake up? I, I mean, I, I have to tell you, the whole point of why I'm talking with you, and I'll tell you, sometimes I get very frustrated because people wake up when they want to wake up. You can't wake them up. They have to wake up for themselves. As I said, you have to see it for yourself. Like people watch this movie Casino, they think they're talking about a casino. It's not the casino. Our country is the casino. We're the players. We're the suckers. We don't have a chance. If you watch that scene and realize that's our politics, hey, red pill, you're woke up. Now, what you want to do about it? What you want to do about it? And I want to talk about medical terrorism. Because, you know, the count room where this thing is getting scammed, the biggest chunk, the biggest piece of the scam, the biggest skim is medicine, healthcare. I mean, it's a scam, right? How do they do it? Well, it's our fear of death. We're afraid of dying, right? So please, doctor, please tell me something I want to hear. Well, you got a 40% chance of being dead in five years, but you got a 60% chance of living if you stay on these drugs, you take this surgery, this procedure, and then you come back every three months for the rest of your life for a checkup. Because it could come back and kill you. And that's true. 
So, you know, the best scams have that truth in them, right? Don't want to die. You don't want, we have sanctity of life. Oh, the sanctity of life when it comes to my life, that's pretty sanct. I'll spend anything to stay alive. And they say, yes, you will. 1.6 trillion. The fear of death is a means of control. What's terrorism? Terrorism is the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians, in the pursuit of a political aim. What's the political aim? The skim. The skim is the aim of the entire system. It's a skim. If the aim was my well-being, it wouldn't be constructed like this. But the aim is disease creation and disease management and the skim that's associated with the comeback. You know, like a, like a crack-addicted person going back to his drug dealer on the comeback. I mean, I'm sorry to talk about it this way. And if you're a doctor, you know, I'm not here to say that there aren't incomparable miracles that are associated with medicine. I've been the beneficiary of some of them. Uh, so I'm very uh, favorable to the art of healing. I'm more favorable to the art of well-being, or as Benjamin Franklin said, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That's a concept that we could work on a little bit. But terrorism, let's not call it unlawful. See, that's just a, a labeling. Because when the government does it, it's not terrorism, it's government policy, right? No, 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 no. Let's just leave the unlawful thing out. It's the use of intimidation. And what's more intimidating than if you don't come in for a checkup, we could miss your disease and you could die. That's very intimidating. It's on every television station, every media channel, constant ads, constant ads, constant ads. Take drugs, go to the doctor, constant, go to the doctor, go to the doctor. Okay, got to go to the doctor. It's almost like if you don't go to the doctor, as we saw during COVID, if you don't get the shot, you don't wear the mask, you're a bad person. You don't have medical autonomy. You don't have the freedom of choice about how you pursue your own uh, well-being. We're living in a community after all. We have to do what the World Health Organization tells us. There's another podcast coming up. That's a great group of people. The use of intimidation against civilians in the pursuit of a political aim. The aim is the skim. I am sharing with you my opinion that the aim is not my well-being. The aim is the skim because we have health care for all in a for-profit system. What? Remember, health care is a right? It's a right. That When they use that word right, you know, you remember that? Unalienable rights. A creator, we are all endowed by a creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and health care. Well, life is free. Liberty is free. Well, it comes with a price, blood. But, you know, there's no price tag on these things. They're priceless. But health care has a price tag. This year it's $1.6 trillion. I don't know. I suppose the margin is 30%, 40%. It's good margins. Now, when you look at the financial statements of these companies, they don't have that kind of fat. you got to take a look at the executive salaries and all the ways they're siphoning off the cash. The skim. 
The skim is everywhere. We could we could take a whole podcast and just take one of these companies apart, take their financial statement, we could go through it on the screen, and we would want to puke. Because these people are, you know, they're the government. The Affordable Care Act, this is why they're the government. Health care for all in a for-profit system. President Obama. Really? And, of course, they're going to blame this on the Republicans. Why, it's a for-profit system. Uni Party. They're all in on it. The leftists. The rightists. I mean, the whole family is into the skim. Because the skim, part of the skim goes to these people that are skimming, and then they kick back to the politicians to make sure they get their way. We know that's how our system works. And you know why it works? It works because we the people don't stop it. We need to wake up from this very terrible dream about slavery, drugs, and piracy. I don't like this dream. I want a completely different formation of our government. I guess that would make me a radical. I don't want this status quo. This status quo is extremely unwell. It's bad for my children. It's brainwashed them. It's brainwashed everybody. We're all, I mean, we're all at different phases of waking up, but it doesn't matter how woke up you are, you're still brainwashed. The Affordable Care Act, formerly known as the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, colloquially, also known as, please see, I get mad. When I get mad, I can't talk. I'm so mad about this. Obamacare, because it's for-profit socialization of medicine, which is a ridiculous comment. It's it's like a riddle. It's like a joke. A landmark U.S. federal statute enacted by the 111th United States Congress and signed into law by President Barack Obama on March 23, 2010, the socialization of well-being. Uh, you know, this was the Cloward and Piven system. Obama was a Columbia graduate. If it ain't fixed, break it. That's what they did here. They knew what they were doing. They knew they were going to break the the finances of the United States government with this. And, you know, when you go to Wikipedia, they even, they even have a little spin on it. I love this, right? After Obamacare went into effect, increases in overall health care spending slowed including premiums for employer-based insurance plans. Well, I'm going to tell you, that's a bald-faced lie. I pay for an employer-based insurance plan, and the increases have been staggering, staggering. I mean, they just lie. You know, how many people really own employer-based health care plans? Just a handful of us. And we don't have a constituency that's big enough to scream, you're lying. The price didn't go down. It's going through the roof because they got the 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 green. The smoking lamp is lit. The green light is on. The skim is going on full blast. Everybody's going to the casino. That's called the doctor's office. I mean, that's what we're living around. This it's twenty percent of our economy. Twenty percent. Twenty percent, and the law reduced. This is the you know the hook, right? The law reduced income inequality by taxing primarily the top 1% to fund roughly 600 in benefits on average to families in the bottom 40% of the income distribution. So this thing is sold as redressing the wrongs of our society. 
Well, we had a lot of uh, we had a lot of uh, arguing about this a lot. And uh, when President Trump uh, took over, there was still an opportunity to overturn the socialization of well-being. And what does that mean? When you socialize something, you preclude pre- creativity and human difference. Everybody's the same. That's what socialism is. And it eliminates the connection between man and a creator. That's what it is. We're going to talk about it more and more. Those of you that know, if I'm talking to you and you know this, you're, you're nodding your head and going, yeah, that's what it does. And you know, what's so interesting about President Trump and politics and, you know, sometimes this stuff just gets personal. And that's why I say to all the people that want to hurt me in politics in Minnesota, because I, you know, I'm at the front end of a movement, which means there's a counter movement. The counter movement would be called the status quo or the uni party or all the people that want to support the uni party and all these slavery, drugs and piracy ideas. Like the guy that told me history doesn't matter. You know, that kind of thinking. Uh, these people, are per- they personally don't like me. Some of them personally don't like me so much, they act rather anti-Semitic, not realizing that I know Christ, which I find hilarious. Anyhow, that's also coming up in the future. You know, these are ticklers. You know, I'm advertising for future podcasts because I want you to come back because I enjoy talking to you. You know, Tanner, I'd like you to play this little piece where Trump disparages McCain. It's just very interesting. I said somebody should run against John McCain, who has been, you know, in my opinion, not so hot. And I supported him. I supported him for president. I raised a million dollars for him. It's a lot of money. I supported him. He lost. He let us down. But, you know, he lost. So I never liked him as much after that, because I don't like losers. But, but Frank, Frank, let me get hero. to it. He's he hit me. Hero. He's not a war hero. He's a war hero. He's a war Five hero. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. Do you He's agree with that? Oh, that's great. Okay. All right. So this, you know, this is a personal attack on John McCain that uh, Donald Trump thought was quite witty. Quite witty. Very witty. And uh, it got an applause and everybody, you know, it was a provocative thought. We like our war heroes not to be prisoners. It's provocative. But John McCain was a war hero in the minds of the American people. And uh, I think John McCain didn't like uh, being characterized and having his reputation tarnished. So when President Trump won in 2016, because the Obamacare thing was not yet settled, it came up into the Senate to overturn it and go back to, a, you know, a, a, well, not go back to, to create a new model that was not a right in a for-profit system, which is ridiculous, okay? I'm just going to tell you my opinion. Talk about a skim. I mean, it's bigger than the military. That's how good the skim is, okay? So guess what happens? They go and they're going to have a vote in the Senate to uh, end uh, the Affordable Care Act. Play this piece. This is how sometimes when you get personal, and let me just say this, okay? The toes you step on today may be attached to the ass you have to kiss tomorrow. So my advice to myself and to everybody is, this is just business. It's not personal. Let's not make things personal. Look what happened to President Trump when he tried to overturn 
the Affordable Care Act. Play this next piece. 1.29 a.m., Senator McCain re-enters the chamber. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell stands at the front of the room like he had most of the night. The grin on his face, though, quickly disappears. Mr. Peters. Senator Bernie Sanders appears to nudge Senator Gene Shaheen as if to say, watch this. McCain waves his hand to get the attention of the Senate clerk, pauses for just a moment, and gives a dramatic thumbs down. An audible gasp on the Senate floor, and then commotion. Some Democrats can't contain their excitement. Senator Elizabeth Warren leans in to get a better look and breaks into applause. Senator Dianne Feinstein, a single assertive clap. Senator Sherrod Brown slams his hand on the desk in affirmation, while some Republicans, like Senator Marco Rubio, stare in disbelief. Senator Bill Cassidy drops his head. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer turns and waves his arms, apparently trying to quiet them, as Senator John McCain turns around and walks back to his chamber desk all alone. That's Mr. Reed. Good, Tanner. That's good. So we're never going to know. Uh, John McCain might have been a communist. It's possible. Because, you know, my comment is the people that are running stuff, they don't care what ism they use. To them, liberalism and Nazism is the same thing. Communism, socialism, same thing. It has nothing to do with the isms. It has to do with humanism. It's about the science of humanism. That's what really matters to the people that are getting the benefit of the skim. Because they're at the top of the food chain taking the cash. While we're fighting about everything, all the, you know, my business model, my, my description, money flows uphill and shit flows downhill. There's my one swear word, for, swear word for the podcast. So John McCain trapped the people in terrorism and dependency. And here's what we get 24 hours a day on uh, every media channel. Sky Rizzi. I have moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. Now, they're SkyRizzy. With SkyRizzy, three out of four people achieve 90% clearer skin at four months after just two doses. SkyRizzy may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms, such as fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or coughs, or if you plan to or recently received a vaccine. Talk to your dermatologist about SkyRizzy. Learn how AbbVie can help you stay. Oh, another ad for SkyRizzy on the Professor Penn podcast. And if you're suffering from plaque psoriasis, and I know that's a terrible disease, I've had skin diseases, they're horrifying. And look at that woman. She was so happy and so free, set free by science. Now, those of us that have suffered from disfiguring skin diseases know uh, science doesn't have much of an answer, okay? They can mask some symptoms, but it doesn't go away. It's a, it's a disease that's deeper than our dermatologists really can deal with. And, uh, but that advertisement, if you take a drug, look how happy you are. That's really what's being sold. Scientism. Okay, so that's what uh, John McCain trapped us in, the terrorism of uh, medical dependency. $4.3 trillion of being trapped, money flowing uphill. In 2021, national health care expenditures grew 2.7% to $4.3 trillion, $12,914 per person. 
every person. Now, the government tells us there's 350 million people in the country. You know, if we did a good count, maybe we'll find out there's less than 300 million. And we do need to do a good count. Be nice to really get a good accounting. It uh, was 18.3% of the gross domestic product. What we spent on health care, juxtapose that with well-being, because well-being, there's no expenditure. If you're working on your well-being, that's completely free. That's called go out, take a walk for two or three miles a day, eat modestly, eat natural foods, don't overeat. Well-being, it's virtually free. But we spend 20% of our output, and the skim is just unbelievable. $4.3 trillion. If you got a 30% skim on that deal, that's over a trillion dollars in profits. Over a trillion. And that doesn't count all the salaries. Wow, what a great business, slavery, drugs, and piracy. That's why it's so enduring. Unbelievable. The biggest piece of this pie was hospital care. It's 31%. Well, hospitals, very good business. And they always claim they're going broke. Strange. Strange. They're always asking for more money. They never can make money. And the nurses are always are always striking. You know, here in Minnesota, the Minnesota Nurses Association, they're trying to pass legislation which reduces the number of patients a nurse has to care for because it's, first of all, it burns the nurses out. And second of all, it's not safe for the patients if the nurses are overworked. And they're actually having a fight for this. Why? Because these hospitals are managing costs. They're managing their costs down at the risk of the patients and at the expense of the nurses. That must be drugs, piracy, drugs, and slavery. It's that model. It's not about the people. It's about the profits. Come on. Can we wake up from this now? It's like a terrible nightmare. So, well-being, 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 a win-win. Why is it a win-win? Because I'm going to feel good, and we don't have to spend all this money on health care, okay? And it's not health care. It's disease management. It's chronic disease management because 60% of adults in this country are managing a chronic condition like plaque psoriasis. And, you know, of course, what the uh, transhumanists are going to say is that this is a genetic problem, therefore we have to evolve the genome. Great. But what we know in the literature is so many of these conditions are influenced by our choices, by our environment. You know, we're just going to keep going deeper into this slavery, drugs, and piracy model unless we the people wake up, and we have a lot of work to do to talk about this. We have a lot of work to do to rediscover what traditional cultures knew. Self-governance is about well-being. That's what our founding fathers gave us. They gave us a system where we, the people, were in charge of our own well-being. It wasn't legislated for us. We made choices, and we were responsible for our own safety and our own well-being. And look where we've gotten to. We've given up our safety for alleged security from a police department that comes to clean up the mess and contain any further violence. 
safety, right? Safety. We're not safe because there's police. We just have people to come clean up the mess. And then we've given it up for material well-being, material, materialism, which includes this health care scam, our material life. We've given up all of our spiritual freedom for this. And now we have a spiritual illness, and it comes out in gun violence, suicides, mental illness, wars without end. We're spiritually ill. So we need to recover our well-being. This is the critical issue of our day, our well-being. And uh, this is a, a very, this is the core of uh, what culture is all about, is a survival strategy. And our survival strategy as we the people has been hijacked, hijacked by very malevolent people who are not concerned about our well-being or community well-being or humanity's well-being, they're Darwinists. They're only concerned about their own well-being. And because they're Darwinists and they have no relationship with any kind of spiritual truth, they think it's all about them. They're radical narcissists is what they are. And they have created the conditions that have led us to this very unhealthy place that we're in today, $32 trillion in debt, and on the verge of nuclear war. That's the output of all of our sum efforts. That's the sum total of all of our efforts. Well, our efforts have been hijacked because we, we live in a culture and it's in our, the cells of our, of our body, our expectations, our rules, well, our, you know, how we think this game is supposed to get played. And the rules are rigged. In fact, we don't even know the rules are rigged. And how do they rig it? Okay. Well, in the little bit of time I have left with you today, I just want to give some more examples. And quite the contrary to my acquaintance who said history doesn't matter, that's an insane concept. You know, this guy is into brainwashing people. All the folks that are walking around saying history doesn't matter, they're just pulling the wool over everybody's eyes so we can never figure out how we got here. If you don't know how we got in this mess, how are you ever going to get out of it? So all these people that are saying history doesn't matter, and they all, a lot of them have something in common. That's called former government service. And some of these people, when they're former government service people, it's never former, it's forever, because they're part of that secret society. Some people get out, some don't. The ones that don't, they keep spinning the web. History doesn't matter. This is, this is intentionally put upon the people. Our educational system, for example, or how history is taught. It's taught to make sure we can never figure anything out. Now, this, I'm sure, is malevolent. And let's just talk about some malevolent people and how they got the power that they got. Because we live in a eugenics culture. The whole culture is eugenicist. Our entire culture is Nazi, or could call it Darwinist. And why do we know that? When you went to school, did they teach you about Charles Darwin and the origin of the species as if it came down from the mountain with the tablets? Oh, I got mad again. See how mad I get? We're taught the origin of the species as if it's the truth. It's a theory. It's a description of reality. It's one of many descriptions of reality. It's not reality. It's a story. But it's a story that justifies the model of piracy, drugs, and slavery. 
it says that we're in a competition for survival of the fittest. And, you know, these fit, fit people that won the game, the lottery, that ended up owning a casino. Well, first of all, how did they get there? Generally, they got there in what's called a paradigm shift. What is a paradigm? A paradigm is a pattern, an outstandingly clear or typical example or archetype. So we live in these paradigms that tell us or inform us what the rules of our life are going to be. And from time to time, and this is a lot recently in the last 500 years associated with science, but it happened before. For example, the Judeo-Christian history was a paradigm shift. It was a paradigm shift in people's thinking. You know, when Abraham did not sacrifice Isaac, that was a really important moment in human history. We stopped sacrificing children, allegedly. We're getting back to it now, but it lasted a long damn time. We're not going to use our children as inventory. It was a new idea. We got a new idea. The combustion engine, for example. The wheel. You know, paradigm shifts. We had these paradigm shifts in the late 1800s that were associated with, you know, freedom of movement, the car, and that was oil. You know, the combustion engine runs on oil. And we got these phenomenal fortunes uh, that were, were um, created in the paradigm shift of these new businesses, not unlike big tech. You know, in, the, in 1992, what was Google? What was Apple? What was Facebook? Didn't exist. These are incredibly powerful institutions that have arisen because the people that founded them were in the right place at the right time with the right skill set as the paradigm shifted. So they all the benefits of that shift accrued to them. And what ends up happening? Arrogance. Because when you look in your bank account and there's, you know, $80 billion in there, you might think you're smarter than other people. It's a reasonable uh, mistake that one might make. Humility as being juxtaposed to arrogance. Difficult if you win the lottery. You start to think it's all about you. And then all manner of depravity is the next step. We're talking about the Council on Foreign Relations. And where did their money come from? Well, they didn't come from we the people. We don't even know it exists. It's the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Corporation. Who are these people? Who are these people? What is the Rockefeller Foundation? Well, John D. Rockefeller was a big uh, player in the oil business at the start, you know, it's always good to be the person that organizes a business. He didn't discover oil. He wasn't the first person that sold oil. He just had the business skills to organize the business in his favor throughout the entire world. And I'm, I'm going through this in the time we have left to let you know the stew pot that we're getting boiled in, this eugenicist, Darwinist, anti-human stew pot that's run by these people and their heirs that think they're special because they happened to get a lot of money during a paradigm shift. And they concluded that they were better than everybody else, became Darwinists, got incorporated into the world of the satanic, and they want to clip everybody out. And I'm going to prove it to you. Because, you know, their record is on, you know, they're, they're on record. You can go find this on Wikipedia. I didn't dig this up in some kind of 
holy vault, okay? You go to Wikipedia. You put in John D. Rockefeller. You start looking around because you do your own research. Because unless you find it for yourself, you're not going to believe it. Here's a tale that's hard to believe. Here's an American citizen who owns one of the most respected, doesn't own it, it's a foundation. His money was granted into a trust, a foundation, to pursue his ideas after his death. See how it works? I got a ton of money. Not me personally. I'm just using me as a stand-in. Let's say I got $20 billion. Time's running out. I create a trust. That trust funds a foundation. That foundation has a charter and bylaws. And those bylaws are created by me at the end of my life so that my dreams and my goals are pursued even after my death so that my ideas are timeless. Isn't that great? Isn't that special? So what did these guys leave us, Mr. Rockefeller? Well, let's talk about who he is. Mr. Rockefeller, uh, on February 25th, 1890, formed a joint venture in Germany for the, for the refining and distribution of petroleum. Uh, it was a joint venture with industrialists Franz Ernst Schutt, Karl Schutt, I assume a brother or a son, and Wilhelm Anton Reitemann. These three dudes went into business with John D. himself, the big dog, and they created a subsidiary of Standard Oil that would operate in Germany and in the city of Bremen. And they went through it in you know, a whole years, decades of development, and this became the preeminent uh, refiner and oil distributor in, the, in Germany, right up to when Hitler started. And you'd think, oh, an American citizen, I can't be involved with the Nazis. I must quit like I've done in my life. Another story for another podcast. But when I found myself in business with people that didn't like me and I didn't like, even though it cost me a lot of money, I stopped because that would be called sacred honor. That would be called having a spiritual uh, allegiance that was higher than my allegiance to money. Some of us are like that. Maybe we live lives of poverty, but when I die, I have a life of meaning. And I, you know, I'm, this is part of well-being. So that, you know, the Nazis took over, and you'd think, oh, John D. is out. No, that's not what happened. At the start of World War II, when the German economy converted to a war footing, they just kept right on a going there. And uh, that John D. Rockefeller company, uh, you know, was considered a German company. And it was put by the Nazis on the list of defense contractors, and it received preferential treatment. In fact, two directors of the company, these would be the friends of John D. Rockefeller, Carl Lindemann and Emil Helfrich, were members of a secret society, a secret Nazi society, called the Freundeskreis der Wirtschaft. Ha <laughs> ha! Now, John had to know about this, right? Because these were his partners. I think John liked it. He I don't have any, I'm making up a story. But I bet they asked him, John, we've been asked or we'd like to volunteer for because we have one of the most important industrial companies in Germany. We're the guys with the petroleum. The war machine doesn't work with the, without the petroleum. 
John D. was in on the Nazi war business. He was at the top of the pyramid. The money was flowing uphill to John D. through the Nazi war machine. Isn't that special? And his partners came and said, we would like to be part of the Freundeskreis, the Wirtschaft. What is it? Well, it was, no, it was known as the Kepler Circle, also known as AKA. It was a group of German industrialists whose aim was to strengthen the ties between the Nazi party and business and industry. Oh, it was the Council of Economic Advisors. It was run by a guy named Wilhelm Kepler. What a sweetheart. Unbelievable. Uh, from 1936 to 1944, the members of the Kepler Circle, out of their own pockets, donated one million marks a year to Himmler, another guy you might want to look up, the number two guy, the head of the Gestapo, if you know that word, to fund special projects outside the German Nazi budget. One use of that money was to fund the Ananerbe, which conducted Aryan historical and eugenicist research. It sponsored a Jewish skull collection of 86 victims that were murdered. Oh, isn't that great? That's what these two guys were involved in. Partners of John D. Okay. And Kepler, what a sweetheart he was. He was an engineer, and he was... Uh, at the top of the, of the food chain there in Nazi Germany, he joined the SS, the SS, great group of guys. His SS number was 50,816. He was the 50,816th person to join the SS. They kept a, a log of who joined and when. In August 1932, he was a personal friend of Heinrich Himmler. And uh, this guy, at the end of the war, uh, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but he was pardoned by the U.S. High Commission. What is that? And was released on February 1st, 1951. He was released by the United States government. I wonder why. Why did they release this guy? I digress. Kepler was known by U.S. intelligence as the Kodak Man. There's another great U.S. company. Kodak AG, its German subsidiary, was transferred into two, the hands of two trustees. It's not like they quit their German operations. They just had a little cover-up scam going on. And they continued to make money through the war off the Nazi war effort, as did many American companies. They produced film, fuses, triggers, detonators, and other war material. Slave labor was employed at Kodak's plants in Stuttgart and Berlin. Hey, we're talking about this this, this stew that we all grew up in, that's a Nazi stew. We don't think of ourselves as Nazis, but we're living in a Nazi world. If it sounds a little bit extreme, I'll send you some red pills. Keep taking them. Maybe the effect will kick in at some point. According to the John D. Rockefeller website, prior to the First World War, Rockefeller established his fund as a family, this is a quote, as a family foundation seeking to advance social change. Part of this was an elaborate and well-funded series of programs that was founded and funded in the United States, but applied in Europe to study eugenics. Oh, eugenics. Remember eugenics? 
eugenics, positive eugenics, which would be transhumanism, negative eugenics, which would be genocide. Rockefeller was funding that. Isn't that great? The Rockefeller Foundation specifically helped fund the program that Joseph Mengele worked on before he went and was the doctor at Auschwitz. There's another name you should look up, Mengele. That's M-E-N-G-E-L-E, funded by John D. Rockefeller, Standard Oil, Amico. You know, hey, I guess we're all in and on. If we're buying the gas, money's flowing uphill. In addition, quote, quote, by 1926, Rockefeller had donated some 410000 almost $4 million in 21st century money, to hundreds of German researchers. In May 1926, Rockefeller awarded a quarter of a million dollars to the German Psychiatric Institute of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. Among the leading psychiatrists at the German Psychiatric Institute was Ernst Rudin, Ernst Rudin, who became the architect of Hitler's systematic medical repression. Ernst Rudin. Let's just take a trip down this guy's memory lane. Ernst Rudin. This guy was the eugenicist in charge in the Nazi movement, funded by the United States, by us, we the people, because we were buying gas, and that funded the whole program. Okay? I'm trying to make a case that while we're taking care of our, our, our families and going to play softball on the weekends and watching television, I'm being nice about this, right? The people that think they won the lottery because they're so smart are funding eugenicism and Darwinism and Spencerianism and Galtonianism. They're eugenicists. Every university you're sent, that I'm sending my kids to, that you're sending your kids to, is controlled by eugenicists. We just don't know it. We think they're there to learn basket weaving. Isn't that great? Rudin was born in 1874. It goes back away, April 19th. He was an ardent advocate of the theory that the German race was becoming overly domesticated. That means modernity was making the Germans weak. He didn't like all this industrialization. He liked people living in nature. It's a common theme of the Nazis. And, you know, because of this modernization, the German people, the Aryan race, was degenerating, and there was higher rates of mental illness and other conditions. Rudin was looking at the same problem I was talking about, a spiritual illness. But his solution is a little different than mine. My solution is education and enhancing the well-being of we the people. Rudin's idea was, let's just kill all the people that aren't well. Great guy. Fantastic. Kind of guy you'd like to have dinner with, right? Don't turn your back on him. Uh, Rudin uh, really believed that uh, the financial burden of the sick and disabled meant that they should be killed. Isn't that great? They didn't want to spend $1.6 trillion on health care in Germany. They wanted to spend zero. Just kill them. Let's spend the money on just eliminating these people, and we'll make the genetics of the country better. These are, trans are proto-transhumanists. They didn't have the technology yet. That's what the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation has been funding all along, scientific research into evolving humanity past Homo sapiens. Do your own research. You've got to see it for yourself. This guy grew and grew and grew, and uh, he had an international reputation 
as a leading hereditary, a, a leading geneticist in addition to being a psychiatrist. In 1930, as this top guy in the field of eugenicists, he was a top eugenicist, top eugenics guy, he went to the first International Congress for Mental Hygiene. Mental Hygiene, that would be eugenics. Guess where they held it? In Washington, D.C. This thing was being run out of the United States of America by our fam most famous people, okay? He was the president of the International Federation of Eugenics. He was involved with the British Eugenics Society. This guy was a world leader in this. And, uh, you know, he ended up running the Nazi eugenics program. And in 1933, uh, he became the uh, a Reich interior minister. And he helped contribute to the uh, law that was passed after Hitler took power, which was called the Law for the Prevention of Hereditarily Diseased Offspring. Kill him, okay? Here he stated himself, this is his words, not mine. It's great, these people write it down. I don't have to make up a story. He told us, listen to this one. The significance of racial hygiene did not become evident to all aware Germans. They had a different red pill. It was a different kind of red pill. I have to read it again. It's hilarious. The significance of racial hygiene, he meant eugenics. That's called killing human beings. Because they didn't have sanctity of life. Because they don't believe in God, right? The significance of racial hygiene did not become evident to all aware Germans until the political activity of Adolf Hitler and only through his work has our 30-year-long dream of translating racial hygiene into action finally become a reality. This son of a bitch wrote this down. I mean, you know, they must have thought they were going to win. You know, this is like, you know, you, this, is, this, is, this is evidence of murder, right? Legalized murder. You know, we legalize murder. We do it in this country, too. We say, don't believe your lying eyes. It's not murder. It's legal. It's legal. Rudin was a racial fanatic for the purity of the German people. That's who he was. Uh, he joined the Nazi party, as I said. He was a big player in there. And what ends up happening? After the war, he was arrested. Of course he was arrested. And he was convicted. Of course he was convicted. But strangely, much like Kepler, because of his, con you know, his connections, he was uh, pardoned. And he got a little fine for a little bit of money, and they let him go. And guess where he ended up? As a professor at Columbia University. You know, I talked to my daughter about this. She doesn't care. Well, I care. What are we doing having a monster like Ernst Rudin given a teaching assignment at Columbia University? This should piss you off, okay? This means your kids are going to universities where Rudin's students and their student students have spread out his eugenicist ideas throughout an entire... We imported a Nazi. This guy was convicted and pardoned by the quote-unquote U.S. High Commission. Now, that's a subject for research. Who was on that? Okay. I wonder what influence—this is a story. But I wonder what influence the Rockefeller family had on getting Kepler and Rudin pardoned so that they could continue their work. It's unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. 
Henry Ford, the Ford Foundation. The Ford Foundation. Another eugenicist. This guy, and I'm not here to say that, uh, I mean, I don't want to get this into a story about whether or not we like Jews or not or if we hate Jews or not. That, that's not the issue of today's podcast. The issue is, let's start out with anti-Semitism before World War II that led to the systematic and industrialized murder of 6 million European Jews. Probably we, most of us, I know there's going to be some people watching that think that was a good idea, but most of us are going to agree that industrialized murder of a population is not okay. It would be called murder. If you have any faith in God, any belief in God, you have belief in the sanctity of life. Well, Ford was a conspiracy theorist, and he drew on a long tradition of false allegation against Jews. Ford claimed that Jewish internationalism posed a threat to traditional American values, which he deeply believed were at risk in the modern world. Oh, this is a little bit like Rudin, right? Part of his racist and anti-Semitic legacy includes the funding of square dancing in American schools because he hated jazz and associated its creation with Jewish people, which is really interesting because we know jazz is an authentic American art form that comes out of the black, the African-American community. So he was very honest about it. In his mind, Jews were black, which I think is great. Royce White and I are going to start a show called Hebrews because I agree with Ford, okay? We'll get into that. I think it's hilarious. I mean, Henry Ford and I agree. That in and of itself is a, is, is a, is a comedy. But he, he thought that Jews came up with jazz. No, he, think, he knows blacks came up with it. He just think Jews were blacks. So for all my black listeners, let's look at this in a little bit different light. Let's look at it through Henry Ford's eyes. Henry Ford bought a newspaper called the Dearborn Independent, and he ran a long series of articles that he called The International Jew, the World's Foremost Problem. These articles ran from 1920 to 1927, and there were 700,000 readers. So this guy was, in fact, moving the needle. Ford emerged as a spokesperson for right-wing extremism and religious prejudice. I mean, he got into it so deep it was hurting his business, which, of course, because he was all about the money, he backed off a little bit when Ford sales started to drop after the war. Uh, in a letter written in 1924 by Heinrich Himmler, Himmler, the head of the Gestapo, go look it up. If you don't know the name Heinrich Himmler, please do your own research and discover it for yourself. Himmler described Ford as one of our most valuable, important, and witty fighters. Isn't that great? A Nazi. The Nazis liked him. Ford is the only American mentioned favorably in Hitler's autobiography, Mein Kampf. Hitler wrote, Only a single great man, Ford, who to the Jews is a fury, still maintained his full independence from the controlling masters of the producers in a nation of 120 millions. Speaking in 1931 to the Detroit News, Hitler said, I regard Henry Ford as my inspiration. And he kept a life-size portrait of Ford behind his dress. This is Der Fuhrer. Der Fuhrer. Hitler himself kept behind his desk. I want you to think about what that means. You know, the founders of any secret society, 
when they die. Their picture is kept on the wall behind the people that pick up their traditions. Like if you go into a secret society, like a martial society, let's say you're in Japanese karate, and you're going to train in what they call the dojo, the training hall. When you go to bow in, on the wall is a picture of the founder of Japanese karate. It's just sitting there. And here's Hitler keeping a picture of Henry Ford behind his back in his office. The significance of this, for those of us that understand secret societies, cannot be lost. Henry Ford's portrait hung on the wall behind Adolf Hitler's desk, which means when people looked at Hitler, when they sat across from him, they saw Hitler, and over his head was Henry Ford. Where did Nazism originate? Where did eugenicism originate? What stewpot are we living in over here as we pursue health care? It's unbelievable. Hitler was awarded uh, Ford the German Cross of the German Eagle. It's the highest award that a non-German can get. Okay? Crazy. It's just crazy. And the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Endowment, I mean, all of them. We go through all of them. One is not different than the other, only the name. They all have one thing in common. They're all into eugenics. Praising American leadership in eugenics in his book, Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler considered Ford an inspiration and noted this aberration in his book calling him a single great man. Hitler kept copies of the International Jew that Ford funded in his Munich office. I mean, you know, we the people, we're so far downstream of this well that these paradigm shifts created and all the politicians are on the payroll of these wealthy industrialists, we're so far downstream, we don't recognize that our entire set of cultural rules that we're living in today is like that scene from the movie Casino, where we're the players and we're suckers. We don't have a chance. That the entire point of the whole system is to take our energy, which is expressed as money, to separate us from our energy, to impoverish us, and to send us home broke and despondent. And when you have nothing, you're very prone to have spiritual illness. And spiritual illness leads to physical illness. And guess what? You get onto that hamster wheel of the Affordable Care Act. And it just reinforces the slavery, drugs, and piracy model. So how are we going to get out of this thing? This is called a, a pregnant silence. I'm going to try it again. How are we going to get out of this horrible business model, this Nazi business model? I'll create space again. The space, hopefully, for those of you, particularly if you're active in politics, that's the only question that matters. That's the question I'm asking myself. I'm asking you to ask that question. If some of you had a whole series of things that were running through your head in that quiet moment, that's great. 
because we need to creatively work our way out of this. And I'm going to say that the way we're going to work our way out is self-governance, that we're going to take responsibility, we the people, for both our safety and our material well-being. And our material well-being extends to our physical well-being because our physical well-being, that's material. If we're going to get out of this, it's about responsibility, personal responsibility. You know, not to get too uh, religious, but, um, and I, I don't mean this in a religious way. I mean this is in, in the way we get scammed. The people that are Christian and have, you know, accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're saved on an individual basis. President Obama, you know, nullified that. He said, our salvation is based on our community's salvation. That's because he's not a Christian. That's a very anti-Christian comment, okay? Where he believes in collective salvation, okay? You know, he's a socialist. He's a Marxist. He's a communist. He's a Nazi. He's a liberal. It doesn't matter. It's the science of humanism that matters. So if we're going to uh, uh, confront this anti-human, anti-God philosophy, which is in complete control, let's just remember, it's in control. It is ruling us. We're going to have to individually take responsibility for our own safety and our own security and make that into a well-being statement that we can share one with another. That's my idea. Now, there's many other ideas that I have. That's, that's the mission statement. How we're going to operationalize that is what politics is all about. So this is what we want to talk about. Uh, we're going to work on this. We're going to form a statewide network of people that are so interested. We're going to have regular Zoom calls. We're going to be getting together. We're going to form a network of people that have similar ideas and want to find a way to express this politically. It's an action philosophy. So uh, in so saying, I want to wish you well-being because that's what this is all about. Well-being is about independence, self-dependence, interdependence, not dependence. So I want to thank you for joining me. That's a choice. I want to thank you for sending this out to other political activists so that the engagement goes quick, quickly. Time is short. We'll talk about the Ukraine tomorrow. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'm going to make it much easier for you to get in touch with me very shortly. We are a community. We are free people of America. We're working together to enhance human well-being. That's what's going to get us out of this mess. I look forward to seeing you soon again, and I wish you peace and well-being. Thank you very much for joining me.